Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Clean your gun and tune your bow. We're the Hunt Collective Show. Calling hunters new and old. The Hunt Collective Show. Where facts are facts and opinions are subjective. You're listening now to the Hunt Collective. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 174, where I am completely and totally faking my enthusiasm because I am very, very tired, but I am joined by Phil the Engineer. Phil, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm, I'm doing great. You said you're faking your enthusiasm. I, I honestly don't sense any enthusiasm, real or fake, so you're doing a I bad am, job. Oh, I'm doing a bad job. Well, I'm totally talking like this in a very monotone way, so you do not hear the pure desperation and vocal fry that's happening on my end right now because uh, we are on day, what, Ford Van Fossen, what day of the turkey track are we on? I don't know what day it is, and I definitely can't count to 10 at this point. What what day are we on? It's a Monday, and oh, I don't know, 12 maybe? 10? Could be anywhere between 5 and 12. 3 and uh, 3 and yeah, maybe we maybe started nine. we technically started on the 10th and it is now uh the 19th. 9. It's a 9 9 days on the turkey trek, 9 days of glorious glorious turkey hunting. I am currently sitting in uh a unknown town in Nebraska where we are on the third whistle stop uh of the turkey trek uh 2021. I guess we say Trek for Turkeys. Is that right, Ford? Trek for Turkeys uh, with First Light and NWTF where we are trying to... We're doing like a telethon uh, in a non-live format to raise funds through memberships for NWTF. We are nine days into that telethon. Uh, No one has known it's going on to this point, so it's a bit of a backwards move. But we got Ford Van Fossen here who is the czar of conservation at First Light. And he's going to update us on exactly what we need to do. And then we're going to tell you some stories for from our trip thus far. And Phil, you all you really need to do is sit back and get excited for your upcoming first ever turkey hunt. Uh, that's your only job here, buddy. Okay. All right. I'll do it well. I'll make you proud. What I'd like for you to do in the, in the interim is get up at 3.30 in the morning 
and drive around for an hour and a half and then walk around in the woods for about an hour and then go home just to practice for turkey hunting uh, here in a couple weeks. Okay, that, that sounds like a, it would be a terrible training montage in a movie. <laughs> yes. Yes, I would like you to run across the beach with a turkey decoy on your head. Yes, please, yeah. please. Uh, anyway, Ford Van Fossen, before we get into any of the stories, the laughs, the mis- the mishaps from the turkey tour, uh, tell people our content would have debuted yesterday, which is Monday. This is Tuesday. Um, but we have a bunch of content coming out for a very important reason. If you want to tell everybody exactly what's going on. Yeah, we're just we're starting the documentation of aforementioned trek for turkeys Monday on First Light's Instagram story. Uh, we'll we'll be hitting posts too, but basically we'll be telling the story of the trip uh, whilst driving folks to sign up for NWTF um, for memberships. We're trying to hit a thousand memberships by the end of the month. That's sort of the goal here and. And to do so, we're ripping around the West, hitting four different states, visiting some habitat projects, and killing turkeys. We have done all of that um, this week and last week, and we have roughly the rest of this this week to go. We're, we're in Nebraska. We're going to be in Wyoming, uh, visit a habitat project up there. We just got done hunting some beautiful WMAs in different places in Nebraska where NWTF has supported and done habitat work. I'll be even work, working with a guy named Luke Gazak. I always get everyone's last name wrong. That's probably nowhere near how you say his last name. Um, but Luke is a NWTF forester. We've also been hanging out with Jared McJunkin, who works for the NWTF on a regional biologist level, um, and really been learning about what they do, learning about why it's important, and hunting some of the places that that they've worked to help improve in terms of habitat, especially um, in this area of Nebraska and other areas of, of states that we've hunted. So it's, it's been cool to learn about not only, um, you know, turkey hunting out West in great detail as, as we'll, we'll tell you some stories, but also what the NWTF does. So very seriously, as we talk about conservation on this show, we have Shane Mahoney coming up, the great and powerful Shane Mahoney coming up for a good interview about some of these subjects and about what conservation really means across the landscape uh of you know as as shane might put it human existence or human relationships with wildlife um this is just one instance of um an opportunity for everybody out there to go to first lights instagram you'll see instagram stories that started yesterday that continue today and will go on throughout the week uh, of us hunting ford myself uh jonah uh bell and max benz have been filming us we've had as the aforementioned folks from the nwtf We've got Kevin Harlander, who, as I sit in a hotel room, is out right now crawling around in the snow trying to kill a turkey by himself, I might add. He's pretty hardcore. Um, but it's been a joint effort between NWTF and First Light and Meat Eater um, to kill some turkeys and also raise awareness for the fact that memberships are down and banquets are not as easy to put together for NWTF as they have been in the past. And so this is all our way to uh, drive attention for that. And um, I think it's uh, it's we're going to talk about how it's gone, but uh, for what would you how would you handicap where we are right now in our trek for turkeys? Uh, give, you mean the update of of how things yeah. are going? Yeah. Well, you know, I think they're going really well given the weather conditions that we've been dealt. Uh, it has been wintry to say the least. 
I would say, and, and snow and blow and cold and all that stuff is not what you think about necessarily when it comes to turkey hunting and certainly not what you think about when it comes to successful turkey hunting. So the fact that we've killed seven, I think. Yeah, we'll call it, we can call it eight because uh, Luke, the uh, aforementioned Forrester from the NWTF shot one yesterday with us, so we'll call it eight. Yeah, I think I think that sounds right. So anyhow, all things considered, I mean, have we filled every single tag we had? Uh, no, but have we filled some tags in some incredibly inclement conditions? Yes. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I can't complain, man. I think it's coming off well. Yes. Yeah, we've learned uh, learned a ton about the NWTF, hanging out with guys like Jared McJunkin, um, who is a wealth of knowledge. They spend their lives around turkeys. Just to be able to hang out with them is enough for me. And yeah, we've we had a great morning yesterday. You guys will eventually see uh, the tail end of our Nebraska trip. We had an amazing encounter with a, a big tom here in the piney ridges of Nebraska, and uh, got some excellent footage of that tom. Yeah, Ryan, Max. Max sent me a clip. It looked straight planet Earth. It is wild. Um, yeah, it's absolutely wild. Yeah, and so some slow motion footage, some some a bird dancing the decoys. He came in on the string from a couple hundred yards away, down a hill, up the other side, uh, crossed a fence, which you know turkeys tend not to want to do. He and Ford knows that from his experience in the in South Dakota. Uh, across the fence, came right in the decoys. We let him do a little dance and make a little love, and then we ended it with the TSS. Uh, federal premium tss real quickly there but the the day before kevin harlander got a couple of birds and a couple of days prior to that uh ford van foss and you and i doubled we in, did indeed uh, South that was Dakota. that was a joyous joyous moment i think folks will see and perhaps think i overreacted but when you've been hunting turkeys and blowing snow for yeah. at that point four or five days and you finally connect with not one but two birds and in so doing tag out in south dakota one gets excited they tend to get excited. Now, I've told Phil this, uh, and I, I will reiterate, that I'm not sure the psychological things that happen, but whenever, and it's really just you play the game of pursuing turkeys, you get up early, you run hard, you sit out in the snow, you freeze your ass off, and when you finally have success, everything is better in your life. Like, the sky is bluer, uh, whatever, you know, fast food hamburger we ended up being... Uh, coerced to eat that evening was delicious the bed is softer um everything is sweeter at this point partly i think because you've won the game and the game that ford and i played for five straight days uh in two different states and oh yeah um, in high 30 40 mile an hour wind gusts blowing snow uh extreme cold frozen calls frozen everything um did a lot of driving, did a lot of walking, and to finally get to the point where we're in South Dakota and we got two birds on the ground, uh, you have every right to. I feel like you f- fell onto the ground. I, I would say I laid. I laid upon lay, the ground. You laid upon the ground. In excitement. In excitement and kicked into the air like a bicycle kick into <laughs> the air. I don't remember the bicycle kick, but it <laughs> it doesn't seem unlikely. It was very, I think it, I remember there, there being some sort of kicking, um, but we were, man, we were excited. And I guess the story goes that it can be done in the, in, if you're out West hunting early season, like we were on opening days, some of the Western States, 
it can turkey hunting uh, can be very successful in snow. It can be very successful uh, in rain or wind, but boy, uh, it makes it a whole ton harder. The success we've had here on our third stop of the turkey tour has been aided by some warm weather days, which has now switched today. I'm looking out the window. It's muddy and snowy and windy again. Um, but we've, we've had some warm weather days, some fired up birds, and that's where the, you know, really the beautiful moments of turkey hunting come. But you can, it can, you can scratch out if you're, if you're out there right now listening and it's not great weather where you're at, um, you can scratch them out. You just got to stay, you got to stay on it. Got to stay persistent. You got to spend the time, uh, Ford and I, we definitely spent the time. Yeah. Two days in, well, yeah. I mean, talking scratch out, we were fortunate to have, uh, Rick Hutton of fish hunt fight gear. Um, and, uh, at our, at our first stop there in Montana, and Katie Miachetti from Modern Huntsman's, whose name I probably also mispronounced, but uh, they were able to kill two birds in, I mean, borderline whiteout conditions. Um, yes. And that was just full-on grit, borderline spot and stock turkey hunting. But Rick really saved the day in Montana with those with those two birds filling some tags uh, and uh, turning turning the frown upside down on yeah. some real inclement weather yep and that that brings to mind a couple things we need to address with the audience you'll see it in the footage i'm sure um ford ford passed up a jake on the first day uh do you want to just just talk about that a little bit ford and what it was like to have me give you shit for so long about it not only i mean uh, everyone i would say gave me uh proverbial feces over it um <sighs> You know, he, yeah, we're starting this this twelve or whatever day hunt. We get there, the weather's lovely. We're hearing birds, um, and we strike up a bird, and it, you know, it sounds a little pubic or uh, like it hasn't gone through puberty. I would say, is, I guess, what I'm look, looking for. And it's pubic, yeah, <laughs> pubic's not the right word. Uh, no, that that. That's a, a turkey test. that That's had not gone through puberty yet. So anyhow, yes. we get in, we set up. Uh, Jake sort of gobbles into view with another Jake. I put the gun barrel over it, and I look at its neck closely, and it has a tiny little spurt of beard, and I don't shoot it because I'm thinking to myself, this is a giant turkey trip. Here we are. We're, we're great and powerful turkey hunters. I'm not going to shoot this Jake on the first day and I don't and I get back and as you stated uh shit was immediately thrown my way and in fact I would come to regret it uh very much so given the weather I mean it was like on I passed this Jake up and on a dime the wind started blowing 40 miles an hour (laughs) the weather just went to hell uh and we struggled to to get birds so I 100% should have shot the Jake. And, and I would like to emphasize that I am not a person that usually passes Jake's. Yeah. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm always the guy looking to kill the spike, but yeah. Uh, you know, here we are doing this big content trip and I, you know, I was just inflated about it. I think I thought I had to be someone I wasn't, um, <laughs> or I had not. It sounds like you've done some self-reflection on this. Yeah. Well, we had lots of time to think about it, trudging around the snow, not killing turkeys. Um, yeah, we did. And so, yes, I a hundred percent should have filled that tag even more so because, uh, you know, in Montana as a non-resident, I had a general tag 
and a Region 7 tag. I had two tags in my pocket uh, and absolutely should have filled one of them on the Jake. But, uh, you know, you live and you learn. Yeah. Well, here in the Hunting Collective, we forgive and we forget. And uh, we'll tell a story about these two times we shot. But we definitely, you're right about this, though. We, we arrived in uh, Montana to beautiful weather. And literally, as soon as I arrived and started to get my tent together and get all my gear out, the wind started to blow. And it did not stop blowing until we were blown the hell out of the state, <laughs> down to South Dakota. Uh, we we're, were licking our wounds headed down to South Dakota. You know, we, we thought, you, you, you get inflated. You think you have all this confidence. You, you have all these goals. I'm over here throwing out, you know, double-digit numbers of turkeys that we're going to get. And, and how if we, if we fill a tag here, where do we go next? And, you know thinking about all these positive outcomes and we got our butts whipped pretty good there uh, other than as you mentioned rick hutton who is a bit of a turkey i'm not gonna say he's he's a sharp character so he's not a savant but he's a master of he's turkeys, a good I turkey killer him and yeah. him and old seth morris um know yep. how to slay turkeys in particular in montana it would appear yeah and so phil you um you've heard all about the jakes you heard from tony peterson that he likes to shoot them You've kind of heard the self-reflection of Ford here. Where do you stand currently on Jake's in terms of your first hunt? Uh, I don't know. There's some sort of like weird self-pride thing that probably I, 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 don't, I don't know if I would. I'm sure I would in the moment. But thinking about it right now, I'm like, yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I oh, would. Oh, you would go, okay, all right. What know. if I'm like, shoot the Jake, shoot the Jake, Phil, shoot the Jake. Or you, will you be like, quiet, quiet, O'Brien. <laughs> or will you... <laughs> Maybe, bend to my peer maybe if I'm on my 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 last my last limb with you, I'm just tired and fed up, and I want things to end quickly. Then you'll shoot the Jake. I'll shoot the Jake. Yeah, God, I'm looking forward to this, man. I'm looking forward to a hunt. Every time I post anything about turkeys, I get about a dozen DMs about like, why didn't you bring Phil? What's wrong with it? <laughs> you asshole. Um. So anyhow, yes, we eventually made our way to South Dakota. We had uh, a couple of of snowy cold days there and then on the morning of day five is this correct there's a day four it would have been day four of hunting i would say it was our second full day in dakota i think yeah yeah second full day in dakota so yeah i think day five total day thereabouts day five we've got two turkeys on the ground but nothing for me and ford we've hunted our butts off ford goes in and, and roosts some birds the night before we had been out that morning. The wind was blowing. It was cold. No gobbles. A couple gobbles right off the roost, and then it would be completely silent. And it was feeling like it was going to be a real struggle to scratch out a turkey in the time that we had to do it. But we sidled up to the roost. We we I knew that these birds would gobble in the roost if they got fired up. When they hit the ground, they basically shut up for most of the day. You might hear a gobbler or two at them for the, for the entire time that are on their feet during any point in this day they're miserable just like we are you know they're not warm they're not happy they're not content they're miserable they're trying to get out of the wind they're hunkering down they're getting in the timber um wherever they can and so our strategy was to get up to the roost tree as close as we felt safe that they wouldn't see us get in there put the decoys out back off and be quiet and listen for the fly down well, we got quite the, as you'll see on the content of First Light's uh, Instagram stories, we got quite the gobble gobble show in the morning. There was, I don't know how many birds lighting up in the tree, you know, maybe 120 yards up the ridge from us. 
oh, yeah. there were some ha- some hens in there yelping, right? That we felt like we're behind, like we were literally on the wrong side of of the hens. The gobblers in between us and the hens on the other side of the ridge. So it didn't seem like a great opportunity to start off, but the birds were fired up. And when they flew down, I wasn't quite sure exactly where they flew down, but as soon as they kind of, we heard them fly down, a gobble lit up way in the distance, oh, yeah. further in the distance than we wanted. And I looked at Ford, I'm like, I think they, I think they flew down 500 yards in the other direction. Yeah, man. I mean, when I heard that hen on sort of the far side of the rise, I, my heart sank a little. Uh, I figured she had just dragged them off the total opposite direction. But it was so far off that I did, a part of me also thought it was a separate turkey, which in fact was the case. Yeah, it was the case. And so it wasn't too long before, I mean, it was still in the, you know, it was pr- still probably prior to shooting light when they f- they flew down and they're up the ridge. They actually flew, the, there's four, what, four toms, was it? Four toms, yep. Um, four toms fly down and hit the ground. I couldn't see him, but Ford could, one of our camera guys. Jonah could see him. They fly down, they hop up on a log, they're all strutting together. Um, eventually, Ford gets an eye on them. Eventually, I can hear him spitting and drumming up there. Mm-hmm. No gobbles, no nothing. My strategy was as soon as they hit the ground to start calling, you know, and just, just kind of very light, almost like tree yelps, like very contented yelps, nothing excited because these turkeys, when they hit the ground, they're just trying to get warm, find shelter. Um, and so we weren't going to really be aggressive with calling. So we just did, I did some light clucking, some, you know, some turned and directed the yelping to behind me. And these birds kind of slowly, I mean, and I mean slowly, snake their way in they only had to go what 100 yards or so oh yeah they kind of they did sort of the move left move back right scenario kind of you know danced at at maybe 70 yards back and forth and then sort of went around some deadfall and sort of started pa-dump-pa-dumping towards us slowly yeah and they finally came out into view the first time it went down this little cut and there was timber between us and the turkeys, but they're, you know, they, they pop out at probably 60 yards and they're just slowly working their way. No goblin. There's one dominant Tom and probably three subdominant Toms, two year olds, I would say. And one strutter, all the others were kind of just popping around, looking nervous, you know, not looking like the regular fired up, happy turkeys we're used to in the spring. And they kind of slowly work their way down towards our decoys within about 50 yards. And as I'm at this point, you, I, the understanding of the mindset is that I wanted to kill a turkey desperately. We all wanted to get on the board desperately. It's been five days. So I kind of had the opportunity to shoot the first bird that came down before we got in the decoys, before we had the opportunity to, to bring the other three birds down. And my thought process was, man, I'm going to take a sh- chance at this and see if the, all four of them will come into the decoys. They've already committed pretty far. But they weren't fired up. They weren't coming to the decoys. They were just kind of filtering our way with some interest in what we were doing. And what we think happened is they saw the decoys with snow all over them, and that kind of boogered them, and they all four of them started to walk away immediately. Yeah. So as yeah. That's my guess in that, you know, they probably, what, were they probably 20 or 30 yards from the decoys? And yeah. I mean, it yeah. was, at that point, the system was moving in. It was snowing hard, and there was probably a, 
quarter to a half inch of snow on the decoys that had accumulated just in the, you know, 30, 40, whatever minutes since we've been sitting there. Yeah. Yeah. So we just figured that, that really, they weren't comfortable anyway. They weren't really all that fired up. Um, although there was one time that continued to strut throughout, I think only just, just really as a dominant the show of dominance over these other birds, but yeah, they, they were walking away. And in that moment that they're walking away, I'm thinking, I can't, no way. There's no way that these birds, there's no way they're going to walk away from us. Oh, my heart sank when I started to see the rear ends of them kind of heading away over, over, uh, into the distance. Yeah. I get stressed out now thinking about it, even though we killed two birds, I get stressed out at watching. They're just walking away from us. They're like 60 yards. They're all bunched up. I can't shoot. Now I'm thinking I totally messed this up. I should have just shot the first time. They're walking away. I shouldn't have tried to get it all. I should have just scratched out the turkey that we could get out of this deal. And so I just thought, well, I'm going to have to like give a couple of clucks or something to see if they'll turn. So I gave them just a couple of like desperate clucks. And the first bird kind of turned and they started. They didn't come back to us, but they started going up the way they came down. Yeah, they retraced their steps, oddly enough. Yeah, they didn't, I mean, you know, you hunt turkeys like this, you don't really know what they're going to do. They're not fired up to charge the decoys. They're just kind of uh, feeling out the space, <laughs> I guess, in a, in a weird way. So they turn around. The first bird gets, crosses uh, into an opening. At this point, it's on. I'm not letting him get anywhere. I shoot. He drops. The other birds kind of go, immediately run up the hill. Ford shoots, boom, dead. Two turkeys on the ground. I think you had to put a second shot on him, but that's not uncommon. Yeah, I, and, uh, you know, in retrospect, I don't even remember why I shot again necessarily <laughs> in my head. It just, yeah. it did happen. Um, and hopefully it was necessary. Unclear. Yeah, it was It was necessary. So we got two tops. My immediate reaction was like relief and just we got it oh, done. Oh, yeah. In an incredibly difficult situation. Uh, Ford's relief or Ford's reaction was pure joy as we explained, but man, it was, it, it's the best feeling in the world. You know, we all know that when you struggle to get something, when you finally get it, when you work hard and you finally get it, uh, it means all the more. So that, that, that felt good. And, and, uh, those were, that was our turkey success story prior to coming here to Nebraska where we've had some, some additional, uh, success, but it's, uh, man, it feels good. Oh, it was awesome, man. And, and, you know, the other thing, Ben, to be honest, this storm system was had opened up on us. It's snowing, I don't know, inch an hour, but it was pushing pushing that rate, coming down hard, and we're supposed to get, you know, they were calling for, I don't know, like four to eight inches. And, you know, that just doesn't – I wasn't feeling optimistic about our chances kind of going forward from that Um Hell, Ben, you were talking about how we were gonna we were gonna track these turkeys. That was becoming our next strategy. Yeah. Was if you know, with with four inches of snow, we were just gonna start tracking turkeys through yeah. uh, through the area. <laughs> which I mean, we would have done, I suppose, but we would have had it, to. It was. Uh, it, it's not how you draw it up in terms of turkey hunting conditions. So I was. I'll be honest. I was excited too that we were able to seal the deal before that thing really yeah. had uh, that storm had really laid down some snow. Yeah, because it eventually that was uh, last Thursday, and it snowed Thursday and all day Friday almost too in that country. So if we wouldn't have 
wouldn't have got those two birds down when we did. We would have had two incredibly hard days of hunting. And other folks that we met that were, you know, folks that we mentioned earlier that were hunting didn't have any luck, you know, in yep. places where they're really used to having a quick turn turkey hunt, you know, with a lot yep. of birds in the area. So, yeah, that's just one of the many stories from the Trek for Turkeys. Um, if you want to hear all of the stories, every single one of the stories, then you got to go over there to the First Light's Instagram. That's at First Light Hunting. And you'll see all the stories. There's going to be plenty of swipe ups to get you to this NWTF website link. Ford, can, can you tell people what's going to be at that link? Because there's some pretty cool things. If you sign up for a membership at that link, there's some yeah. pretty cool things that you can get. So if, if you, you sign up for a uh, 2021 NWTF membership, National Wild Turkey Federation membership, $35, um, you will also be at, uh, entered to win um, a little package we put together, including uh, some Onyx Max memberships, uh, Weatherbee 18i shotgun, which is the shotgun that uh, both Ben and I and Harlander at least, and probably more in our party are running right now. And uh, if all that's not good enough, you'll be entered to win a first light kit styled over Zoom by Steve Rinella himself. So Steve will hop on a Zoom call with you. He'll say, you know, what are you hunting? Where are you hunting? What are you doing? Okay, okay. This is what you need. You need this base layer, this mid layer, these pants. Um, he'll build that kit with you. And then First Light will mail it right to your door. That's beautiful, man. Well, like like we've been saying, this is this is our way of, of putting together a telefo- telethon for the NWTF. Um, you'll, you'll also hear the aforementioned stories uh, about conservation projects and important work that the NWTF does in this area, but it's not oh, yeah. just this area. Yeah, I mean, I think that's – and that was sort of that's, – that's a part of this, man. It, I One of my uh, proverbial – I guess, axes to grind or, or dynamics, I think is interesting. We talk a ton about conservation in our world in the hunting industry. Um, and that's all good, but I really enjoy seeing what conservation is. And by that, I mean, okay, well, yeah, we want to give dollars to NWTF. Well, what, what are those dollars doing? And in this circumstance, we're illustrating where that money goes, right? It, it goes to, uh, Springhead exclosures in the Bear Lodge Mountains of Wyoming. It goes to a riparian area exclosure in um, in the Custer National Forest of Montana. That's going to timber stand improvement projects in Nebraska and in the south and in South Dakota. Um, so, you know, we're we're getting in there. We're talking to these guys, Jason, Jared, um, etc., and and walking these projects, learning about what they cost, how they were put together, all that good stuff, and, and kind of showing folks where their money goes when they give to, to conservation groups, and in this circumstance, the National Wild Turkey Federation. Yeah, and like I said, we got to, to meet Luke, uh, a local forester here, and he, he told us all about how he uh, works in cooperation. His, his position is a cooperative position with um, all these agencies and NWTF. And he works with the Nebraska Forest Service, Nebraska Game and Parks, the U.S. Forest Service, and they administer these projects together. So it is a cooperative approach to conservation. And it's easy to just say the word, as Ford mentioned there, and kind of broadly understand um, what what goes into conservation. But then you start talking to people that actually do it for a living. 
and what they go through and the grant writing processes that they go through and how they get the funding and, and how their jobs come together, then you really uh, start to understand the scope and measure of the work that's done. So um, when you're walking around some of these pieces of public ground or even private ground in some in many cases with the NWTF, you can really appreciate what that habitat looks like, You know how thin it is underneath those pines, how much habitat there is for turkeys to use. There wouldn't be other, how less uh, fuel there is for burns in the area. So we don't wipe out habitat altogether in some instances. So all of that is extremely important. And uh, if this sounds like a telethon for NWTF, well, it, it damn well is one. And so go over and follow the instructions at firstlight.com. Well, First Light's Instagram page and um, help them out. 35 bucks. You can win a bunch of really cool stuff. Um, trust me. Trust us. It goes to um, a great cause and the cause that we talk about here quite often, which is turkey hunting. And as we move forward in the year of the new hunter and the last couple episodes of this year program before we were off the air for good, there's no more important time to be talking about it. So thank you, Ford Van Fossen. Um, we'll keep everybody updated next week about how this whole thing ended. And uh, we'll be yelling at you, try to get us to those 1,000 memberships by what? You say the end of the month, Ford? That's a goal, end of April. I mean, the trip will be wrapping up a little before that, but it's a nice round number to, to push, uh, like I said, 1,000 folks to sign up for the old NWTF. Yep, a lot of people have reached out as we announced the end of a hunting collective in a couple of a couple of weeks to ask what they can do and to, to say thank you. If you really want to say thank you to me, to us, this is a good way to do it. Uh, this is the perfect way to do it, in fact. So um, appreciate you, Ford Van Fossen. And uh, I don't mean to follow you up with Shane Mahoney, but I'm going to do it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and no one remembers who Ford Van Fossen is. Go. <laughs> Go. Um, no, man. Thanks for having me on, Ben. It's been It's been a blast hunting turkeys out there. It really has been tough as it's been it's always good to chase them around yeah there's never a better day than a day in the turkey woods uh, success or failure so we're going to turn it over to a great conversation about possession in the hunting world and our need for possession and what that all means with i said about five words during this interview and that's how i like it because the rest of them came from the great and powerful shane mahoney but before we get to Shane, um, we had a little audio difficulty during the interview. I did not notice that the audio was a little bit choppy on Shane's end. Phil, the engineer, is fixing her up as, as best we can. We apologize for that issue. Um, you can still hear Shane. It's just not the best. We try to get the best audio we can in these remote interviews, and this one hmm, could be better. Um, hopefully, you still get to hear his message, and it comes through loud and clear. Please now join Shane Mahoney. Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds i like pot calls i just like pot calls i enjoy calling with a pot call whatever direction you go including a box call which i don't personally use too much but they're fun and great and i started out with them yanni on the other hand 
one of my main turkey hunting buddies. He loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. Shane Mahoney, we had to hit record on this podcast because we forgot. I forgot, and you, we were having a great conversation, uh, as we tend to always do. Um, so I'm glad we're recording, and, and welcome back to the podcast, sir. Well, thanks, Ben. It's great to be here. We always have a lot of fun, and I yeah. always enjoy it. And I'm, uh, I'm delighted and anxious to to see where our where our pathway will take us this time. Absolutely. It's always a, yeah, it's always an adventure anytime, whether you and I are having beers at the wild sheep convention or uh, podcasting and in across the, uh, across the world, really in this case. Yes. Um, well, so I, I wanted to start by just normally I thank everyone at the end, but I wanted to, to start by just thanking you. Um, I know I told you via text that our, our sh- little show here is coming to an end uh, in about three more weeks. We'll be, the last episode of our show we've had a good three-year run yeah. moving on to do other things and and focus on other things and in, in both the meat eater uh, company and in my career so i wanted to just thank you as i start to reflect on this is 170 some odd episodes of hour-long conversations uh when i reflect on on all those conversations i, I look back you know maybe most fondly on your contributions and helping us all learn about the North American model of conservation and our relationship to animals. Um, I think everyone is always inspired by your words. And, and so I just wanted to start by saying thank you for, for participating. Um, I'll probably be very more reflective in the next few weeks than I normally am, but um, I definitely been thinking that the last couple of days. So I just wanted to say thank you. Well, it's very kind of you, man. Appreciate you saying so. You know, it's easy uh, when you're having a conversation with another human being who wants to think about these things. Um, there's, as everything around us constantly reminds us in one way or another, our relationships with nature mm. are fundamentally the most important things we have. They, they exceed and supersede all other issues because without the natural world, we would never have existed without the natural world. We simply cannot exist. So I think it's, um, you know, it has always been a great way for storytelling to emerge, talking yes. about nature, no matter who. And um, it's, it's part of what makes us admire people who feel comfortable in nature so much, whether that's a, you know, a rural man, family, a man and woman, and their children are comfortable around their horses and living with wildlife or it's fishermen who are comfortable on the ocean or whatever it might be. It's an unending it's an unending louvre of kind of possibilities when one, when one starts to talk about animals and animal nature and so on. So it's been a pleasure all the time and I look forward to this one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I, as, you, as, you t- as you're speaking there, I, I, a question pops into my mind that, you know, the first time we, we talked on this podcast, you, you know, talked about your upbringing and you talked about the way you were raised and kind of how that shaped you. 
if you were to if, if you were to meet someone who had no idea about the natural world if if you know an extraterrestrial came down and, and asked you how is it that the natural world has shaped your life and got you to where you are today how would you how would you articulate that because i think that's an important you know foundational moment for me when i heard you you know explaining that the first time but um i'd love everybody to hear it just in its its raw form well i think um I would, I, would, I would ask them probably a question first. How do they think they came to be? And undoubtedly, depending on their civilization, uh, they would have either some kind of very empirical, scientific, so to speak, explanation of their existence, or they would have perhaps some kind of mythological notion no matter which explanation they gave, it would involve outside forces. They were not the epicenter of their own creation, of course, originally. They had to arise from within some greater thing. Hmm. That's the universe, whether that's the planet, you know, whether that's the margins of the oceans or wherever it might be. And so uh, I would explain to them that what we call nature is that thing. That is what gave us life. That is what designed us. That is what, to greatest extent of all things, far greater than our own personal genetics, etc., is greater than all things in setting our expectations, our experiences, our dreams, our physical attributes, our longevity, our mating systems, our our relationships with our, our with our families. I mean that this outside thing made us what we are. They may have another name for it, but here on the planet Earth, we call that nature. I think that's what, that's the approach. Yeah, yeah, and, and as we were speaking about before we hit record here, there is uh, a strong feeling, it's always been in my life, that I'm a part of that, right? That thing we call nature, and I know you feel the same. Um, how did you and and again I'm at some at some level asking you to repeat things you said I know on the show before, but how do you how do you talk about that connectedness and describe um, what you always said is animals are not an other you know they are, they just are not. Well, I mean, to me, how I describe it is to simply ask people to you know question themselves. For someone who grew up as I did, for someone who had the career I have had spending truly inordinate amounts of time with animals in wild places, it's relatively easy for people to say, well, he's become that way because of those things. Right? And But you can take people who have grown up and were born into very different societies and very different circumstances, and yet they are fascinated by the sight of wild things. They may be fearful, they may be happy, they may be cautious, they may, all these things may, may be part of their reaction, but they are enthralled to some extent by the appearance of something that is living that is not the same as themselves. And so I would ask them to ask themselves, why should that be so? Why should they be so absolutely fascinated when their backgrounds, they may have been lawyers or doctors and grown Chicago or Montreal or, or London, some other place. Why is it that we all have a certain level of this kind of absolute fascination? 
Why is it that children of all creeds and colors and creations are, are fascinated even these tiny, tiny little humans with the other life forms that are out there? And so, I mean, I, I guess I try to reach people on that kind of level. You know, if every day we open up our computers and we see these crazy videos, you know, which you can't help but watch, you know, someone's on a golf course and all of a sudden a, an eagle flies by, you know, runs down a duck midair. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, or uh, an alligator is out there, you know, uh, sunning himself near the ninth hole or whatever it could be. I mean, we are absolutely drawn to those stories. And I'll tell you something else that's really a finer detail on this. Have you noticed the emotional outpouring that occurs when someone does something kind for an animal, especially an animal unknown to them? If somebody cares for their dog or or cat or whatever, it's kind of accepted. But you know, if, if someone rescues a deer that is that is found in the ice in icy water, or mm-hmm. uh, I saw one the other day where a bobcat had been frozen into uh, railway tracks. And, and people, totally wild, but people discovered it and helped to free it and so on and so forth. And the, the outpouring of human emotion for both the animal itself, but also for the humans who have assisted that animal is extraordinary. And, you know, sometimes people complain about this and they say, oh, they, you know, they cared more about the mountain lion who attacked the lady than they cared about the lady who was attacked. There's an element of truth in it. But there's another layer of thinking that applies to that and say, well, isn't that extraordinary that we can kind of relate to the lion equally as we can to our primate friend here, the human? That's not to belittle the aggressiveness or the danger of sure. that nature. You know, these things, these things are in us. Hmm. They're not put there by some book we read or some professor at university or some Calling down the road, these are these are in us, and sometimes it takes a little more to bring them out. Sometimes it takes a little less, but I'll tell you, it is in every single human being this tendency, this 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 empathy, this connection with all of the others, and so it should be yeah. because we're all connected. We always have. Absolutely. How do you? And this is, you know, we've talked, as, as we were mentioning before we record again, we've talked a lot about, about animal rights and veganism on this program. We've kind of explored how similar our, our thought processes are with them as hunters. But taking a step back from that for even for a moment, when we talk about our connectedness with nature and the animals that inhabit it and that are part of it, and then you become a hunter, can you describe you know, from your view, what are the possible pitfalls of become, as you become a hunter and you start to, to hunt, pursue, and then kill um, wild animals, how that might change the way that you see them in a positive or negative way? Because I think for me, it's been, been decidedly positive. But when you start with that connection you mentioned, and then you insert the pursuit and killing of, of those wild animals, it, it, it's bound to change um, how one might perceive those. Those, those that connectedness itself. Mm-hmm. Well, it does impact it heavily because um, 
you know, human beings have obviously great um, abhorrence of the killing of our own species. And we we have terms like murder and so on, which are viewed as, as heinous acts. Um, and um, so we understand at some level that the killing of a sentient being it is to cross a threshold, a very significant threshold. Um, I think for those of us who grew up with animals, of course, we always knew they they were so very similar to us in so many ways. You know, they could easily be startled and fearful. They could feel lonely. Um, they could become confused in circumstances. They could run out of fear. They could freeze in fear. They, you know, but they could also do amazing things like rescue people, like our famous Newfoundland dogs, you know, which were notorious for rescuing people who were drowning and so on and so forth. So we came to understand that the animals had these kinds of shared capacities with us. And we understood that it was possible for love to flow between a human being and another animal. Hmm. And humans knew that they loved them, they, their horse, for example, or their dog, whatever. But, if you, but deep down, they also felt and believed directly that there was an element of love that came back to them from the animal to them. And we have seen too many examples of this for it to be debated, whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. It is true. And um, so when one becomes a hunter um, and one undertakes that act of killing, you now see another extraordinary and very intense example of the great similarities between the animals and ourselves. They feel pain. They react in fear. They can go into shock. Their natural systems behave the same way to the impact of the bullet or the arrow as ours would, how they bleed, how they eventually die. And the entire reaction that they show at our hand reinforces, I think, in many people, this very idea that they are the same as us. That doesn't change the natural equation of life, that flesh eats flesh, and that we are all interconnected in the food web of one or another. But I think for, for a lot of hunters, um, and maybe for a lot of hunters particularly, as they get a bit older, more experienced, and witness mm -hmm. this and think about this more, uh, I think what hunting does actually is reinforce the idea that they are the same as us, which of course places enormous burdens on us in terms of, you know, how we hunt and how we try to make it as humane and as quick as it possibly can be. Um, there is, of course, always, a, you know, a gradation, a scale of variability in the reactions of any group of people, whether it's hunters or missionaries or, yeah. or political leaders or whatever it may be. And not everybody feels as deeply about those things. And of course, there will be some people who will reject the thinking because if you hold on to this thinking, realizing how similar they are, that they feel the bullet the same as you or I would, it can be very 
you know, it, it can disenfranchise you from the action altogether. It can sort of prevent you from doing perhaps thinking too much in some cases. And we all know, well, I can speak for myself, we all know that at that moment that when after the stalk is over, there's a point at which you feel you can shoot and you raise your rifle and settle across here as it's on. At some point, you do have to drift into a kind of special space where you keep all of that out of your mind. Yeah. But you have to, you have to enter a clean space. And having taken the life of the animal, um, you're immediately brought back the same. If you get to it before it has actually perished, you see it gasping for air. See it bleeding. You see the you see first the alarm in its eyes, and then eventually you see the light come out of its eyes. And um, it is one of the most profound reconnections with nature, of course, that it's possible for anyone to have. And it should, as well, make us understanding more of the complex dynamics that are necessary in nature, not just the role of prey but the role of predator and then the entire role of habitat is necessary to, of course, support those natural systems which can provide for human beings and provide for other species all at the same time. It's um, even the act of gutting the animal hmm. exposes you, if you're, if you're curious, you know, to the different sizes of the organs in the body of different species, why the liver may be so big in one, the heart so big in another, if you open the, the stomach, you, know, you see what they feed on, and suddenly you realize that, you know, they've been covering all this ground, searching out for these different kinds of plants, or if it's in the case of a predator, this different kinds of prey. And then you realize, again, that all of that has to be taught in some way and learned by juvenile animals in the same way that, that, that little humans have to learn from older humans. I mean, at so many levels, it, uh, it it makes you profoundly, you know, just kind of kind of an awe of the fact that that we can all be related in such a kind of kind of absolutely critical way, an immutable way, and um, and that's why, of course, at some level the thinking of people who are very much in favor of, you know, use of animals, sustainable use, people who hunt, fish, and gather, and, you know, uh, can at some, in some way, not in a straight line, but kind of in an arc, come to share a lot of the emotional, uh, emotional attachments, the emotional aspects uh, of thinking, for people who are more in a non-use mode, animal rights or animal welfare sure. kind of office. You know, there's, there, there seems to be a lot of space in between those two groups, between the hunter, let's say, the classic hunter, classic animal rights activist. But, you know, it always seems to me that if we, both of us were on trampolines, we just gave a little bounce to our own beliefs and our own ideas you know, we would probably eventually 
see a great deal in common between ourselves. Yeah. Certainly that's my hope because, as I have always said, if I have to choose between a world in which there are, you know, some people who care about wildlife and and believe in being part of the ecological relationship and hunt and gather and fish and, and so on, and a group of people on the other side who say, that's wrong, these animals are too precious, they're, they're too much like us, you cannot do this kind of thing, they have rights, whatever. If I have to choose between that and a world where there are people who hunt and fish and gather and so on and believe that we can sustainably utilize, respectfully utilize wild things, and, a, and another part of the world doesn't care at all, I would much have sooner have the first world, yeah. where there are people who are in deep association with, with wild things and with other life forms and, and practice the use of them in a traditional way, and those people who say, no, you should not be doing this at all. I, I prefer that world of, of values and debate rather than a world where there is significant indifference towards animals and wild things. Indifference will lead us nowhere except into this. Yeah. But yeah. debate debate can lead us to places that Yeah. One of, yeah, one of the things that I've discovered over my time having these discussions is that, you know, this analogy that I believe that when it comes to animal rights and veganism, we as hunters stand, you know, at the beginning, when we're looking at a value system for wildlife, we stand, or animals uh, as a whole, we stand back to back. And then we slowly over time have walked away from each other. And we forgot where we started. We're yelling across this void at each other, you know, using our disagreements as a, as a way to stay apart when we forget that we start at generally the same idea as you just described there, that we both value animals, we just have a different way of expressing it and a different way of of seeing it in, in both, you know, the personal sense, the more tangible sense, and the intangible sense of the word. So I, I've just, I've discovered, in and as I said, through talking to a lot of vegans and animal rights folks, that we can come together. It takes almost one conversation to take the most ardent animal rights activists and bring them 10 steps back from where they are to 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 better understanding of where you and I, you know, I think equally sit. But I do mm-hmm. want to return to to a point you just made there about that clear space when you're hunting, about that time the flow state if you will, when you have to, you know, make that final act of hunting, um, which is to kill. I just got back from or I'm I am on now a turkey uh, hunt that's 2 weeks long. And I often get lost in the game-like qualities of hunting, right? I get lost. I get lost in the learning the animal's habits, uh, overcoming my own obstacles, overcoming weather changes, overcoming the things in hunting that feel like a game. There's conflict and resolution. Um, there is an ultimate goal that I'm trying to achieve. And as I think about those game-like qualities, I wonder. When is it okay to get lost in just the pursuit? Uh, you, you started to answer that question. I think you said it well. But do you see across the landscape of hunters that, that we get lost in the pursuit too much and we, we never do return to that moment, you said, when an animal is dead and we get to, to engender that respect and think critically about our own interaction with that animal? 
Um, that was really the basis for this show is to explore what's the difference between being a hunter, you know, and, and, and being a conservationist or being a hunter and understanding ecosystems. Um, and I think the core of that might lie at, at how entrenched we get at playing the game, the pursuit game of hunting. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's a lot in that question to sure. Pack, but, um, let me start by saying this. Um, I think there is the individual experience that a hunter has and which he may share with his son or daughter or with his best friends or with his wife or the wife with the husband, etc. There is that story. There is that, there is that memory, that history. Then there is a kind of a collective image that is portrayed by, you know, journalists or people who write articles, magazines, television shows, podcasts, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, which, um, which often, of course, particularly things other than podcasts, which are very personalized, uh, they tend to kind of represent the activity, kind of. Um, and as we both know, there are many dimensions to that, which are sometimes commercial and so on and so forth. And therefore, we can create for the viewer of all of this very, very different stories about this, this oldest way of life, which is hunting. And in many cases, as you well know, an individual hunter will say, he or she will say to you or to me or to other friends, mm. you know, I, I really don't like the way they talk about what I do. So the first thing I would say is that um, there is a there's a lot of ways in which the story gets to story. Um, but I also do believe that um, uh, and the, the importance of that distortion, by the way, is that people who can be brought into hunting and hearing that distorted story yeah. can develop certain kinds of cultural expectations of how they perform and what they do when they are. But the second point I make is that we, you know, the the. One of the great objectives of hunting, of course, is to is to secure the animal. The ultimate drive, the ultimate psychological drive of hunting, is about possession. Hmm. And while there are many other physical drivers and many other cultural drivers and so on and so forth, the idea of hunting is to possess that animal that you see there. Yeah. And of course, the only way to possess is to kill it, because otherwise it will simply be with you. That's the only way you can possess it. And to some extent, therefore, a threshold is reached in hunting in the human mind, the human emotion and intellect, um, where once the animal is possessed, when it is dead there, and you can walk up to it 
touch its anthropocene, touch its body, and know that it will not leap away again. That's a really important threshold in the world. Too few people go to what is the next level, the next threshold, which is to spend time honoring the hunter. As I said in one of my Sports of Field articles three or four or five years ago, we do a great job of honoring those people who seem to have success with hunting awards and trophies and titles and all this kind of thing. But how often do we honor the hunters hmm. without which none of this is possible? Now, there are traditions in the world, you know, people are familiar with them, European traditions of putting the last piece of food in the animal's mouth and doing various small things to honor the dead animal. I think these need to be uh, brought into the culture of hunting a great deal more all over the world. And in fact, the European expression, which a lot of people know about, particularly the German and Austrian traditions and so on, um, this is really only a modernized expression of what was the traditional feeling amongst hunters when they pursued wildlife, of course, for the very purpose of survival. I have seen films, old, black and white, grainy, jumpy films of Kung Bushman and the Kalahari pursue big animals like giraffes, for example. Um, and eland, and pierce them with their tiny little arrows, poisonous arrows, until they bring the animal to a standstill by running in the blistering hot sun over the sand to eight hours. And in one of the films, there was a translation where these, these, these small black men were running after the animal. They had chasing a kudu. Big animal, as you know, very impressive, wonderful example of the spiral. And um, they said, for the first eight hours running in the blistering sun, we chased the kudu. But after that, we enter the dream space and we are the kudu. We no longer look for sign, no longer look for tracks, because we are running with him. At the end of that kind of hunt is a spear thrust into the lungs and heart of the animal which cannot run any further. But then there are the quiet moments. There were three men in this particular case talking in their own amazing click language about the animal, about mm. its beauty, and its size, how well it ran, and all of these kinds of things. And this is something that needs to be emphasized more for young hunters. It needs to be part of what we emphasize. We ought to be moving in hunting experience and training and education backwards from that moment. That should be the beginning moment of their training and go all the way back from there to learning about you know, wildlife management and learning about a, a rifle and learning about cartridges and ballistics and all these kinds of things. And I think it's... Um, some people have it to some extent, 
greater than others. But I think it is possible to make it part of the hunting culture to a much, much greater extent. And I think it would be impossible for even someone deeply opposed to the hunting of animals to witness those kinds of moments between a still living human who will one day die, of course, just as the animal itself has died and returned to the earth in exactly the same way, who looks down upon this life form and, as I have expressed myself many times, in a sense wishes that he could possess and consume and give life back to that animal all over again. Yeah. But, of yeah. course, the ecology of life does not work. Now that's a that's a powerful message. I have have recently been thinking about and discussing kind of the practical version of my hunting life and the emotional version of my hunting life and kind of the crossroads of both. And and so I can very much appreciate uh, that possession and honor and kind of balancing those two and setting them against each other. In some ways, I imagine that you, you'll have to do. Do you have a do you have a personal story? Of, of a moment like this where you particularly call back to when, when for context of how this how that honoring and that emotion plays into the end of a hunt something that has happened in your life or maybe a story that you've heard from someone you, you respect along the way I, mean, I think for me then and you know I speak very emotionally about this activity yes. I speak very personally about it. and be honest, I think it's probably true that when I started to first speak publicly, emotionally and honestly about this activity, um, this, this, this natural engagement, it made, it certainly made some audiences uncomfortable. And, uh, but I guess for me, um, it's not so much a single hunt or a single event. It's a series of events that are completely independent, but are very often the same, and which taught me that all of hunting is about possession. You don't hear that. People don't talk. Yeah, I've never, I haven't heard that outside of, of our conversations and, and what you said today. And I want all listeners to remember what you're, you know, that, that word. It's important. But that's, so when I was a very small boy, um, living in a very isolated community, um, of course, I started out by catching insects and bumblebees and jars, and, you know, usual kinds of things. And I, I, was, I mean, I did it relentlessly. I was always, always, always at this. Um, and um, I had, from even that experience first, I can see them in the jars now with, with the, small, the small flowers I would put there and anything I thought that might keep them alive and keep them well so that I, I could keep them in my possession for longer and longer. And then, of course, eventually what would happen with some of them, they would grow weak and then they would start to crawl around in the jar instead of flying and buzzing, trying to get out of the lid and so on and so forth. And I'd make sure there were holes in the lid for air to get in and you know, all the things to try to, to keep this little animal alive, this, this insect. I didn't, I didn't want him to die. Last thing I would, of course, eventually I would possess him until he died. And then maybe I, when he was weak, I'd lay him out on the ground and 
wait for him to spring to life, it wouldn't do. And of course, then I would be able to look at him very carefully and see the hairs on his legs and all what his eyes looked like and his jaws and his stinger and all these kinds of things, which I, I couldn't really see when he was buzzing around in my job. And then we used to have things like snowbirds, which would come in on the winter ice and we would try to catch them. And I remember we used to hide under the wharf and, and get a small piece of wood like plywood just something we would find on the beach. And we would put a stick under it with a little piece of rope, you know, and then crawl back underneath the, the uh, wharf on the frozen ice. There was no water under the wharf anymore. It was just pure ice. For, you know, this was a very poor community. We put little pieces of fat pork or rolled oats, anything we could get we think would entice these little snowbirds. And when they come in under the board, of course, we pull the string. And the hope was that you would you would not kill one, but the hope was that you sort of capture one. And uh, I remember doing that and, and, and killing one particular time and, and holding that, that little bird in my hand. I was a small boy, four maybe, uh, certainly no older than And uh, And this is, this is a freezing cold place, you know. This is, this is, this is, this is a place you can't travel you can't, you can't travel by boat for months because there's ice, so much ice there. And I can still remember taking off my mitt and, and having that little bird in, and the warmth from its body, which, of course, was a complete surprise to me. I, 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 did, I didn't think about them being warm as they flew around and, and, and so on and so forth. And then, and then feeling, of course, the heat leave its, 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 its body. And so this, these experiences gets, get translated over and over and over and over again in my life to the times when I finally began to hunt. I didn't begin to hunt till I was you know, in my early 20s. I, I, I hadn't been around it, but to do it myself. And, of course, the uh, first memorable animal was a, was a monstrous bull moose. <laughs> it's a long way, from a, long way from a bumblebee and a and a snowbird. And uh, uh, but I, what I remember then about that, well, with this one shot, he floated to the ground like a leaf. I shot him in the back of the spine and his back of the neck. Instant, instant, instant death. And uh, I still remember as you got closer to him. First of all, the sheer size. This is a big bloody thing, yeah. 1,100, 1,200 pounds. Uh, and the size of his hooves, you know, and then leaning against him and again feeling that incredible amount of heat being renovated, generated from his body. And then I can also remember finally touching those antlers. I had collected, I had collected, I don't know how many antlers in my, in my time. I was field researching all the time. I was fascinated by animals. My, my own son, my little boy, he had a collection of animals that, you know, uh, I mean, most people never see a collection of animals. Uh, and, uh, but I was now touching the antlers on the head of an animal that had just died. And that was a completely, totally different feeling to me. And I remember those things as 
they're far more important than anything in terms of, you know, the shooting or the or even the tracking, field, any of those kinds of things. It was I possessed, and now I could surely I could I could see and learn and feel things about these animals which I which I just could not when I watched them and they were far away from me and they were living the lives that they ordinarily live. And, uh, you know, more, far more recently, you know, the, the cow elk that I took in, uh, in New Mexico just two years ago, I remember, we had filmed this, of course, but I remember she had died. When it was a very good shot. It went right through one lung and took a part. She just, it was only once, and she went a short distance and died. But of course, there was enough power in the, in the missile that some bloods pushed back out through and, you know, touched the grass as we were, as we walked towards her. There wasn't much blood, but there was enough that you could see it on the grass. And this is again, you know, kind of a, an expression of, of her similarity to me. And therefore, of course, there was never any question that I would send all of that meat all the way back from New Mexico hmm. to where I live on the island of Newfoundland, easternmost piece of ground on the North American continent. And I'm not going to tell you or any listener about what it cost me to get that meat back from New Mexico <laughs> yeah. to Newfoundland. But I can tell you that I was very careful about using every ounce of that meat, believe me. Yeah. So... Um, for me, it's just part of it. It's part of the, the ritual. And I, I, I often regret, even fishing, you know, I was a fanatical trout fisher, especially as a little boy. My, so, we lived that. I mean, I still get emotional in the springtime. The snow starts to ablate. The water runs heavy in the small brooks, and it's black. The water is black in springtime. With the snow covering it, it looks black. And uh, it's unlike any other time of the year. And, um, you know, but, you know, sometimes when I would get home, I'm talking again, five, six, seven years of age, off in the woods fishing, because that's the lifestyle we had. Um, sometimes when I would get home and I you know, take my trout off my little skiver, which was only a little you know, piece of tree that I caught leaves off and so on, I, I, I guess still, you know, wish that they would simply come to life again. And, of course, they couldn't. And and I was adamant even then that they had to be eaten. And, of course, my mother, my mother was Irish from Ireland, an Irish citizen too, as a consequence. And, um, you know, she'd, she'd sometimes help us clean them. And, of course, if she saw worms in them, in their stomach, like tapeworms or something like that, well, that was it, then eat them. And uh, this was always a terrible row because uh, the idea of throwing them out was just terrible. Uh, and, um, but, you know, so I suppose for me the leanings were there for, you know, not many children at five years of age, well, I was turned six when this happened, actually, when I turned six, 
my father and mother asked me <clears throat> what I would like to have for my birthday, and I was living in another small community at that time. And I told them hens. So for my birthday, my father built a small hen built. Uh, I had my own hens, and uh, uh, and they were incredibly important to me. I collect their eggs, and of course, it was a common practice that we take hens and we kill them to to eat. Those particular hens that I possess, that I own, uh, no one was allowed to take. So it's a, you know, at what point, Ben, did my my inclinations, my Irish, Celtic genetics, and my Newfoundland mixtures, uh, my mother's fantastic storytelling of fairies and banshees, and what happened in the darkness, and so on and so forth, and the, the deep Catholicism of my upbringing, all of that kind of religious mystery and so on. I mean, at what point all of that came together with a lifestyle, uh, essentially a young ape, free to do whatever they wanted in the natural world, how did that all come together? I don't know. But come together, it did. Yeah, Pieces of so, the ultimate puzzle, you know, that, yeah. that yeah. make so, each one of us. That, yeah, I think that's... It's good to hear. I, I I've heard you you know talk personally about your own experiences some, but um, it's it's nice to hear you relate those things because I'm sure everyone listening has those moments that they remember as a child. But also, I would I would be very unashamed to say that I have a four year old son, and I and I watch closely how he deals with fishing. He's not yet gone hunting, but we we have fished quite a lot, and. He, I always ask him when we catch a fish, would you like to throw it back or would you like to eat it? Yeah. And he never says throw it back. He never once has said, let's throw this fish back. <laughs> he yeah. wants to possess it. Yeah. And he's very proud of that possession. And then ultimately I, that leads us to something I know uh, we, we all quite often talk about, but I want to cover here, of course, is, is to this idea of, how we then translate that possession to food. And I think mm -hmm. it, it, food becomes kind of the intersection of many of the topics that we've already talked about and we'll go on to talk about because it because there is a, an element of a ceremonial nature of eating an animal that you've killed, right? There is honor there. There is possession there. There's many of the, the things we've talked about. There's the practical elements of cooking it and making it taste good and transforming it from. Our friend Ryan Callahan often says the transformation from a living animal to what's on your plate, it's in and of itself watching and being part of that transformation in and of itself changes how you think of food because you understand where that thing came from and what it, where it lived and how it made it and what it ate. Take us to, to the moment where now you have this food. You, we've we've kind of gone from the possession to the honor, and now we're 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 consuming the flesh of these animals. How do you conceptualize that um, that part of it, and how it plays into what we've already talked about? Well, um, I think all human beings have some level of understanding of what the higher order uses of things are. Um, 
and this translates to many aspects of the human condition. And um, while the taking of an animal's life can be done for other reasons, and ceremonial reasons, are the reasons of, you know, it's part of an experience and people wish to have memorabilia of that, such as antlers on the wall or whatever it may be. I mean, while there may be a variety of, of, of end products, if you will, from the hunting experience, I don't think anyone in the world would be able to argue that the consumption of that animal possessed is the most profound and the most justified and the most justifiable reason for lethal possession. If you can capture an animal without killing it, of course, all these dynamics change. But if you possess an animal through its death, mediated by your own hand, then the idea of consuming that animal is, is this, has this kind of profound beauty for two reasons, at least. One is that food is a very unique thing in a lot of species. In a lot of species, food is used in ceremonial fashion. For example, helping feed a mate in a wide variety of species, seabirds, carnivores, etc., etc. Um, in our particular species, this is taken to a whole other level. And, you know, we, we turn it into family gatherings. Uh, we talk about it in terms that are usually reserved for our feelings to one another. You know, I, I, I love food and the way we talk about tastes and how we travel the world to look for ingredients that can be part of foods, foods that are alien to our own cultures, but which we wish to experience. Um, they are part of our ceremonies of death at funerals and funeral rites. They are part of uh, the origins of life at, at births and so on and so forth and at any number of religious ceremonies in any number of religions around the world they are the family dinners that you make people they are the special dinners that take place on special days like new year's day or or or, or any particular one you might choose from a particular culture they even make football games greater because you know you you, you cook on your tailgate and you have these massive parties all around food all around food you know, so so food is a is a is is an incredibly important thing to human beings. And as someone once said to me, Shane, if you want to be famous, write a book, on, write a cookbook. You know, then that, that's that's the way to fame. It really is an extraordinarily powerful psychological and physical reality. Now, originally, the only way we acquired food was through hunting and gathering and scavenging. And of course, the most, most nutritious of all the things we get, the thing that would give us the biggest nutritional bang for our buck, so to speak, 
was the hunted animal, the yeah. animal protein, broken and set free by fire and giving us an explosion of nutrition that nothing else could really equal at the time per unit. Um, and of course, we came to understand, because we knew the importance of food to our own bodies, that when we consumed things, when we consumed living things, we killed, they were what? They were giving us the most precious thing any human being can possess. They were giving us life. And so now there was this inseparability between the lives and the landscapes and the behaviors and the knowledge and the way of life of the animal and our own way of life. This is an intimacy that brings everything together. It brings our relationship to them, their relationship to us, and the understanding amongst us of all of the interrelationships between all animals. The consumption of a wild thing is uniquely positioned in this pantheon of, of cultural considerations. Because as we have shared before, I am certain, the value that is placed on the harvest of the wild thing is always in so many, so many important dimensions, is always different, more nuanced, more enhanced, more, more, more sophisticated than if we were dealing with something that is not wild. And this goes to our traditions of sharing the things we take from the wild with one another, which completely, totally recapitulates the original lifestyle of beings as hunter-gatherers and brings it forward into 21st century where, you know, machines are crawling over Mars at our direction and sending images back to us. And yet that original power of our relationship towards wild things as the sources of our own sustenance is carried forward with a profound, profound importance today. And you may be a banker working in Philadelphia, or you may be a, a business owner operating in Missoula, Montana, or you might be a medical doctor uh, working in uh, San Francisco, something about things taken from the wild and turned into food will always bring something unique and special to your experience. You give people the choice between a pen-raised salmon and one taken at some point in his journey through the cold, wide expanses of the ocean, and they will take the latter for very good reasons, many reasons, and ultimately for cultural and evolutionary reasons that they, they know uh, they take the best when they take from the wild. Yeah, and that, as you mentioned there, it sparks something in you when you take part in that, for sure. Uh, it sparks something in you that's very biological. <laughs> that, feels, that feels like it reaches back in time and 
in many ways. And I know because of your passion for for wild food and your under and your your I know your broader pursuit of understanding of how it affects our world and how it affects you know every part of not only our culture and society but the economics of of some of the food systems that we have that you've you started the wild harvest initiative and it's been some time since you you began that journey years two three years or, or has it been longer than that longer than that it's almost, it's almost four can you explain kind of you know I, I, the wild harvest initiative i think is you i know for a fact looking at the landscape and hunting especially but in conservation more wholly that the wild harvest initiative is, is very unique in what it's trying to do. Uh, there's not much out there like it. And hence, I think for, for many reasons, but for that one, because it is so unique and what, it, what it's trying to achieve, it's important for us, uh, for listeners of this show to understand and, and to hear you articulate kind of the origin story of, of the wild harvest initiative. So can you give folks just the background there? And then, and then I want to discuss some of the, some of the developments and then the future of, of the initiative. Yeah, I, it's, um, you know, a lot of people know me for my work in caribou research, or they know me for my work on the North American model. And, um, but I really do believe that the Wild Harvest Initiative is probably, for me at least, the most important thing that I've ever really undertaken. Because it, it actually brings together all of these things we have been discussing, about, and yeah. there's more besides. I want people to care about nature. And I want them to care about nature in some personal kind of way, not, not, not in some act. That's fine too, but you know, that's for a smaller group. I, I want the average citizen, so to speak, you know, whatever that means, but you know what I mean. I want the average citizen in all walks of life, all creeds and colors, to care about the natural world. And we have to find some way to make it more important to more people because right now with all the distance between us and nature that has occurred too few people care too few people care in order for us to keep what everyone should care and we have to change that equation and i've published in probably 25 peer review journals. I published book chapters and edited books and monographs and written 75 articles or something for Sports Afield and many other outlets and so on and so forth. But my personal belief is that we have to find some way for people to come to nature naturally. Um, you know, a lot of people place a great store on, you know, scientific knowledge academic pursuits, and so on and so forth. But, you know, Jonathan, Jonathan Swift told us centuries ago that, that you cannot reason a human being into something, or you, you, and you certainly cannot reason them out of something unless first they've been reasoned into it, if you know what I mean. They, yeah. th this idea Great that point. empirical knowledge will just fix it all is, is, is very simplistic. And um, so... I started to think about what could this be? And, and what could it be that could transcend everything? All the divides and all the, the social stratas and all these kinds of things. And I landed on this idea of food. And I was aware, of course, that in our world today, 
the idea of human health, the idea of healthy food, understanding the origins of our food, the idea of fitness and longevity, living long and living healthy, was um, was a real social phenomenon. Hmm. So I said, well, what about we started to really think about wildlife as food once again? And yes, there were the arguments against it, you know, this is modern North America, you know, not living any longer in the such and such time, and, you know, it's a, it's a recreational pastime and all these kinds of things. I said, well, well, hold on, let's take a look at this. Let's see how big this is. Let's see how big it is for the 45 million people who hunt and fish recreationally in Canada and the United States each year. Let's, let's just see if this is such an insignificant. So my idea was to compile all of the data existing on the harvest of, of, of wildlife and fish by recreational users only in Canada and the United States. And to measure, therefore, the number of animals we harvest off the land in both countries, of all species, and the amount of food that is generated by all of that harvesting. And, of course, this had never been done before. It had never been done in the history of North America. It had never been done in the history of the United States or Canada. And it had never been done anywhere in the world, I came to eventually realize. And my idea is to show people the number of incredibly healthy meals that we currently are sustainably harvesting from the private and public lands of Canada and the United States. And to ask them to think about what we might be able to produce if we started to think about natural systems and natural habitats as food reservoirs, as health reservoirs for people. And of course, that not only provide food, but also provide running clear, clean water, clean air, and so on and so forth. So I have amassed the largest database in the world on this um, after four years and with great support from a lot of state agencies and NGOs and industry leaders, so on and so forth. And there is absolutely nothing like it. We have lots of efforts out there to talk about game meat and have game dinners and all those and cookbooks and so on and so forth. And that's all good and it's all needed. But at some point in time, we need powerful data to influence policy and political decisions about the lands that support the wildlife of our two countries. And if we can make people understand that these are reservoirs of health, these lands, and that we are all entitled to harvest in a sustainable way products from those lands, then I think we can make a real difference in how people think about the importance of nature. So we also, of course, in providing this information, we are going to say how much it's worth. So if we have billions of pounds, which we do, billions and billions of pounds of this incredibly healthy food and kicking around through our home economies, how much is that worth if people had to go and buy that? Because people like to have a price tag. They want to know how much it's worth. So we are going to tell them exactly how much it would be worth in terms of 
domestic equivalents such as beef or chicken, you know, hogs and so on. And in fact, how much it would be worth as a specialty food item if you had to go buy it at a store or at a, a market or something of this nature. And then we're going to take that value, which is in the many, many billions of dollars, and we're going to add that to the other values of these activities in terms of employment, in terms of sales tax revenues, you know, in terms of all those other benefits, uh, employment generation and so on and so forth that has been associated with the hunting and angling world. And we're going to add this massive food value, which, again, no one has ever conceived of doing. And finally, we're going to give the counterfactual, which is to say to people, okay, let's say we stop these activities now, today, including the new activities that have started in both our countries as a result of COVID, where people are desperately trying to get out there to hunt and fish and spend time in the outdoors. Let's say we stop these activities. What is it going to cost in terms of the land that must be taken, the wildlife habitat that must be taken further to provide both ranging space for domestic animals and also to raise the crops that we use, of course, largely to feed them, the wheats and the corns and so on and so forth. And how much fossil fuel will that require and how much fertilizer and how much insecticide, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And let me add, Ben, that that's not to condemn what's going on in agriculture. We need industrial agriculture. Of course we do. And that's getting better and better and better in a lot of ways all the time, particularly for cattle. People are doing great things with cattle and with sheep. Um, but I want people to know that there is actually a source of wild food and of what, and not only the meat and the fish, but wild berries, wild fruits, wild fungi or mushrooms, wild rices, medicinal plants, shed antlers, firewood, all these kinds of things. And so the wild harvest initiative is this expansive idea buoyed up by data we can tell you what it's worth in Nebraska, where we can tell you what it's worth in Alberta, where we can tell you what elk are, are, how much elk is generating and how much food and wild turkeys that you're hunting now, how much that, how much they are providing to the world. And so we now have this database um, and uh, we are working on equivalents. We've come out with certain amounts of information from this, this, this activity already. We're now working with a public relations firm to come out with a fairly sophisticated, slow release of this data so that it you know, doesn't come out in one big bomb so that people can digest it. And the hope is that we are going to build an alliance of people who harvest from nature, the fisherman, the hunter, the berry picker, the fruit gatherer, the mushroom gatherer, the medicinal plant, all these people who take things from the wild and bring them together and have them represent a component of our societies and then also encourage them to speak with one voice because these lands that provide these products are the same lands in all cases. And the final thing that we are doing, each of these is a monumental task, as you might be aware, um, the other thing we're doing is we're running surveys in states where we are asking the hunters first, and we will do answers, but the hunters first, how much of their food they share, 
who they share it with, why they share it with people. Because we want to also demonstrate that the people who live this lifestyle today do exactly the same thing that we did as hunter-gatherers through the long arc of our evolutionary history. We shared. Not everyone hunted their own food. We did it together, and we shared it with those who were not with us at the time. And you and I both know that that is a phenomenon of the hunting angling world that we share, but it's also true of the berry picker and the fruit picker and the fungi gatherer and so on. We are condemned to share what we harvest from the wild. And this also unites us, this wide consortium of people who are harvesting. We are united not only by the knowledge we gain, the talents we have, the things we pursue in that same space of land. We are also united by this desire to share what we have. When your grandmother bakes a pie made from wild berries gathered by her grandchildren, that pie has a value so far beyond one that is bought in a store that it is immeasurable. Yeah, yeah. The the power in that, uh, man, it's it's innate, and I feel I feel your passion for it when you speak, as always, with everything that you say. And, and um man i really i really appreciate it i've been thinking that's one of the reasons i reached out to you one i enjoy our conversations but i i wanted to get an update about the data that you've been compiling um i may go so far as to ask you if there's anything in it you don't want to break any news on this podcast and share some data that maybe uh you haven't but beyond that yeah i mean uh, what i can what i can tell you is that even if you look at I mean, we obviously have a strategy for coming out with this information, and we continue to build the database. As a matter of fact, we had a series of meetings with a big database company today. And this has become a very big thing, um, it's, it's, and, and it may well soon take root in Africa and discussions about that as well. Wow. Um, so, but anyway, it has become a very big thing. But even if you look at, you know, some of the some of the statistics that we have. I mean, you look at a species like white-tailed deer that in and of itself is providing between maybe one and a half and two billion meals. Billion with a B. Wow. You know, you look at a circumstance where, uh, you look at a circumstance where turkeys, which you are, which we, which you are you know, pursuing now, that, that, that are contributing somewhere around 20 million meals based on, you know, six ounce servings of that animal. I mean, and you add that up across all the species that we are hunting and all the fish that we are fishing and, and then all the other natural foods that we are gathering. This is no sideshow. This is, this is not parochial, you know, uh, throwback. This is not, uh, this is not immaterial. And for the individual families that are harvesting this, it's absolutely vital to their home economy. To the small communities in which they live, it is vital to those communities. And obviously, it has enormous implications for the sustainability of, of rural people and rural local livelihoods and so on and so forth. And this is, this is the lifeblood of nations, the character of the people who live in those circumstances. And, 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 and therefore, 
you know, we have to look at this as not just, oh, you know, there's Ben. Oh, yeah, he's a hunter. You know, he's a bit of a wacko. He goes out, you know, and he, he likes to hunt turkey, spends two weeks running around South Dakota, you know, chasing chasing these, these, these gobbly birds. It's, it's much more. It's much, much, much more than that. And, of course, eventually, eventually, you know, you look at something like in Texas where we did the sharing survey and you find out, you know, that 97% of the hunters in that state share their food. But then you begin to ask, well, well, how much of their harvest do they share? They, they share about 43% of it. And they actually share it with more people outside their homes, 3.7 million people outside their homes, than they do inside their homes, which accounts for another 2.1 million people. Like these, are, these are big numbers. Now, you multiply them across every state in the United States of America, and you multiply that across every province in Canada. I am on a mission to convince American policy and political leaders that we ought to be looking at landscapes as food and health reservoirs. And whether it's public or private land, we should be looking at this to the best of our abilities with the most sensible and sensitive policies that we can come up with, instead of only looking at land as something undeveloped, you know, something that we need to do something else with. And furthermore, because of the science of wildlife management is so sophisticated today compared to what it was, let's say, in the turn of the 20th century or the turn of the 19th century, just imagine if we applied our wildlife management science and our forestry science to managing landscapes for food production, wild food production. How much do you think we could do? It would be absolutely enormous. So if there is a new mission for Shane Mahoney, it is to get our two countries and our political leaderships and our NGOs and our state governments and our whoever the hell we can find to actually start advocating for an entirely new management system for landscapes, one that ultimately is based on human health and food provisioning. Well, that's a, yeah, as you well know, it's a, a very ambitious endeavor, but I think this is you are the exact person to take on such a broad challenge. Um, and I know that there are challenges in exploring something so vast across our even just our continent. So, I, what challenges have you run into, and and what things do you you know what hurdles are you overcoming, and and how do you feel like you push forward into the future to get to this this moment where you ultimately have this case that you can state. Um, well, with data. I think the, I think there are practical challenges. You know, there's challenges of the, of the resources that Conservation Visions has to to mobilize this monstrous activity. We could use ten times the money and support that, that's out there. God knows if any industry or NGOs or other people are listening and they want they believe in this kind of a cause. You know, we can use that because of course that gives us more people and you know, more, more more materials, more social profile, more all the things that are that are out there. Um, I think the other thing that's a, that's a real challenge, of course, is we have to find a way. It, it's 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 long term, right? You cannot then just come out with something and then throw it out there in a press release or write it one article in a magazine and hey, that's great, you know, that's done, that's taken care of, let's walk away. It's this is a, this is a matter just like the North American model concept. It has to be continuously dripped out. It has to have to find new audiences, new venues, new spokespeople, 
new supporters for this kind of activity. You know, and, and they have to come from all walks of life. As I said, they have to be businessmen and they have to be, you know, conservation NGOs. And they have to be hunting organizations. They have to be, have to be everything, the medical profession and so on and so forth, which should be more involved in this than they are. currently. So, you know, that, that's, that's, a, that's a challenge, how to, how to keep people committed to it, understanding that you have to do it over the long term. If the discussions on the North American model had ended two years after we first started to talk about it, after Dr. Geist, you know, came up with the concept, if I had started speaking about that in the United States for a year and then said, okay, well, that's it, we're not going to talk about that, do you really think that that would be embedded in our systems now? Yeah. Is this, no. do, you, do you think this is an evolution of the North American model or, or a, a bolt-on, an addition to it? How would you describe it in relation to the model? <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really good question. That's a lot of good questions, but that's a really good question because what I see this being is the discovery of a, of a profound truth within myself and within all people who engage with nature and particularly engage with nature in the food acquisition way all over the world, not just in it. And in a way, it is not so much an evolution of the model, although it has deep, direct implications and relevancies to the model, as you will clearly see, um, because it deals with hunting and angling and all those things, of course, and valuations of the resource and so forth, the management of it. In a way, I would look at it in reverse. I think to some extent, this issue is the start of the model, <laughs> in mm. a way. Interesting. You know, we, we wanted to protect wildlife that was disappearing. And we wanted to find ways to, to be really effective in doing that. And... Part of the motivation, of course, for keeping wildlife with us was, of course, to be able to harvest it and to and to hunt it and to fish. And, of course, there was always a, a huge component of that that was about food. We didn't talk about it so much that way, but that's what it was about. I mean, we didn't we didn't create the model and all its policies and laws and then say, well, go out, out, out and hunt and then just leave the animal there. I mean, every single state and province developed within the model rules, regulations, laws that said you cannot waste that animal, you know. You take that meat out and you use it in some form or fashion. Mm. So in a way, this was, this was the, in some ways, it was at the very origins of the model. But we never talked about it, you know. We talked about game laws, we talked about regulations, and we talked about hunting clubs, and we talked about habitat. We talked all around it. But we never talked about this idea of food. And of course, the North American model itself is, in a way, just a modern part of the long history of humanity's engagement with the natural world for consumption, for the gathering of food, the capture of animals, the possession of animals, and so on and so forth. And so, in some ways, it goes way, way back before the model. Hmm. Um, so I don't see it as so much an outcome of the model, although I know why you asked that question. I almost see it as something that was at the origin of the model 
but we had to go back to the beginnings to really think of it. Yeah. And uh, it will raise profound questions as it gains more and more influence. But, uh, and as we do the surveys in Arizona and in Texas and in Wisconsin and in Nevada, which we're poised to do now, uh, you know, we will have so much information to bring to people. I think it is going to raise issues around the model, like, well, how, how do we gain access to all this great meat if I'm not a hunter? Should I be able to buy that meat? Or, uh, not everybody's going to yeah. be a hunter or an angler and things of that nature. So it will, it will challenge certain principles of the model in certain ways. And, of course, that's a good thing. That's a, that's a really good thing. Yeah. The most important thing is that the model is about valuing wildlife. That's ultimately what it was about. It sprang from that. We will not lose it. We have to give it a value. And this whole wild harvest initiative is about talking about giving wildlife a value that no one had ever quantified before, ever, ever, in the history of the model yeah. or before. I love that you say it that way with value, you know, because there is, as we've talked about, there's political, like this would add a political value to, to wildlife and wild places that they don't currently have. It would add to and buttress the cultural value that that wildlife and hunting and wild food share. I mean, just you can add, you know, economical value. Obviously, you're really just kind of codifying and, and, and packaging up what's what's already there. Um, but I, I really do appreciate it as 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 I tell a lot of people that listen to this show and that are um, that participate actively in what we do, the North American model has become, you know, the the, the guardrails for how I think about many things within our space. And uh, I've tried to describe it in many ways, Shane. And I used to think it, it kind of, I used to look at it as kind of a bit of the t- the Bible, like the sacred text. And then I, I I didn't think that was giving it the credit it deserved because it's not meant to be a sacred text, right? It's, it's meant to be, it's know. meant to be a, a value system, an explanation of the value system and the practical application of said value system, you know, and, and um, man, I've, I've learned a lot over our time. Folks, you can go back and listen to uh, Shane and I did, I, I believe it was a two part podcast. It might've been years ago now. Um, on the North American model, uh, we'd probably go more two or three more hours just talking about that. But but we have what I know you mentioned to me a while back, like this seminal conversation or, or Shane's explanation of the model all encapsulated in those earlier podcasts. So you can always go, even when the show ends, you can always return back to those. Um, to me, Shane, these, these conversations become, you know, time capsules for, for where we were uh, over these last three years both personally and professionally and then where our community has, has, has gone. So, um, where can people, people can find the wild harvest initiative through conservation visions, but specifically what would you ask people to do if they're interested in either learning about it, participating, giving? I mean, I I think they should just really get in touch with us because we are welcoming new partners all the time. Even in this COVID year, um, you know, the state of Alaska, uh, the Alaska fishing game department, the state of Wyoming, um, New Mexico Wildlife Federation, and now we have a number of conversations going on with, with, with very interesting new businesses that have nothing to do with the hunting space at all, which is really encouraging, and with some international funders now that have expressed have discovered us and expressed a real interest in doing something in Africa. Um, you know, we are welcoming new partners, new, new supporters, 
and and we want them to be diverse. So if, if there's a medical doctor who we know the medical benefits, of course, of, of time in the outdoors and walk foods and so on and so forth. Anyone can simply reach out to us. And it can be just for a conversation, uh, or it can be to figure out how they can, uh, you know, personally get involved. And I think I'll turn this, this, this back on you a little bit, Ben. Uh, you know, you have a lot of connections. You know a lot of organizations and a lot mm. of individuals. I'd ask you to encourage them to reach out to us too and talk to us about it, you know, and see there's many ways to get involved and at many different levels. And uh, if this is going to succeed, you know, it's going to succeed largely because the alliance that we've built around it is so new, intriguing, and inclusive that no political aisle is going to be too wide for it to jump. Yeah, well, I can I can leave this conversation um, our last on on the hunting collective, promising you that I will put you know the powers that I have limited or as broad as they may be into into not only having this conversation and letting people know about it, but but pushing people to to contact you and ask you questions and and look at the results when they start to roll out. Um, I know that I've been happy to see backcountry hunters and anglers yes. um, getting involved with you. As I sit on the board there, that's been something that's been super important to me. And, and fantastic uh, part, fantastic. Yeah, I'm yeah. glad. I am glad that they have have stepped up in the way that they have, and that allowed you a voice and also been a partner of yours. So we'll continue to to push where we can. Um, but Shane, as always, we could go hours more, but. Um, I have to actually go and kill a turkey if I yeah, well, if if you allow me that. Absolutely, I wouldn't keep any man from that. And uh, <laughs> just remember to, to honor that fine bird when he's, uh, I will when he stops his flutter. You know, I, abs- I uh, absolutely will. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's I, I I'll leave you with that. This isn't something that I've been able to really self reflect on until recently. That when I shoot an animal and it and it's dying. I have, like, I all emotion kind of leaves me. I, I get into a state of calm and weird, almost sedation that I don't quite understand. I, I want to celebrate and, and do celebrate, the, you know, the achievement uh, and, then, and then go on about the work of honoring the bird and taking the meat. But even today when I shot, I shot turkey this morning and even today, it was like a, there's like a weird sedation to to my own feeling when something dies, and I don't know that it's overly emotional or it's sad. No, no, no. I'm not sure I really understand it to be quite quite honest with you. Um, but it's but it's interesting that that's my own you know that's my own emotional state when something like that happens. Um, well, continue to explore well, it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a long life. There's lots of more. I think the important thing is to reflect on it too. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a basic difference often between, you know, what might be equally sensitive and equally intelligent, equally empathetic human beings. Uh, there's one kind, you know, that sounds terrible. There are certain people who can live through and experience emotional events and uh, and be very much in the moment aware of the specialness of them. 
but there are other people who could go through those same events and become really reflective. These are the poets of the world. And uh, not all poets write poetry. Some poets simply live a poetic life. So uh, that's what I would wish for you, Ben, that you go forward to live a poetic life. Yeah. Well, cheers. Cheers to that. Cheers to a poetic life, Shane Mahoney. Thank you, as always, for joining us. You're a special person. Uh, you're important not only to me, but to our community. And I cannot uh, tell you how much I appreciate you. And um, we'll continue to work together, hopefully, in the future on many, many things. Um, and and congratulations on how far you've gotten with the Wild Harvest Initiative. And, and um, we'll be working together, I know, to push that forward. So thank you once again. Thank you very much, Ben. Take care of yourself. All the best. Bye-bye. Bye. That's it. That's all. Another episode of the Hunting Collective in the books. I am always thankful for guys like Shane Mahoney, for Van Fossen, anyone out there who cares about wild places and conservation and the animals we chase. That is why I'm here. That is why we are here, presumably. And um, it makes me happy that we can do it for a few more weeks. Phil, did you get any messages from our, our listeners after the announcement last week? I did, yeah. I heard from Luke Reeves, a few other people, A.B. Rich. Um, just, yeah, it, it, it means a lot. I told them, you know, I appreciate it. Thanks a ton for listening and for being such vibrant members of the community. Um, and I also just got one more Instagram post from about five minutes ago <laughs> saying <laughs> a, a comment on your latest turkey picture saying, why doesn't Phil have one yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, we've made him wait quite a long time. But uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks, you're going to get it. Me and Phil are going to go out in the woods and we're going to wrap up this podcast in the only way that I could figure out how, which is to take him turkey hunting and get him a turkey. Uh, so, you know, stick and stay for that. we got a couple more episodes to go. I'm excited about the content we're going to put out. I just wanted to say, uh, mirror what Phil said there a little bit, and thank all of you for the well wishes, uh, the heartfelt gratitude, all the things that came in over the last seven days. I've been turkey hunting, so I haven't been as connected as I would want to be, but I have seen all the messages, um, all the well wishes, and and felt that, and I really do appreciate everybody for, for sticking with us for 170-some-odd episodes. Um, there's no perfect ending for anything, uh, this podcast included, um, but everything has to end, and so we're going to make it the best we can for the weeks we have left. And I would I would extend my gratitude and thanks back to all of you who have listened for all these years, who have been a part of these conversations, and have continued to support us. And I'm sure will continue to support us in the years to come, as uh, as my career and Phil's career at, at Meat Eater and, and likely beyond. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that? Phil's career, and then that caused you to laugh. Career, uh, well, because you're going to become a, a famous hunter after you kill this turkey. Oh, so that's I, right. I, okay. I think your engineer days could be over. That's true. You maybe Phil the hunter at the end of it all. <laughs> you never really know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really there's there's not much more I can say other than thank you. Um, it's, it's going to be hard to see this thing end. This is, as I said last week, it's a big part of me. It's a big part of my life. Um, I've, I've had, I've had, uh, you know, watched my kids be raised while we were recording this. 
Um, and maybe one day they'll they'll listen back to it and they'll get kind of a time capsule of these three years and and all of our lives, my life, Phil's life. They'll be able to listen back to these episodes and and learn about where we were and what we were thinking during these crazy years of pandemics and and my second child being born and all the things that life events that have happened during this show. And um and it, it you know it won't go away. So for everybody that asks, Meat Eater will keep the show up. All 177 episodes will remain, and you can listen to them whenever you like uh, and get and relive some of the cool conversations we've had over the last three years. So, again, a heartfelt thank you to everybody, uh, to every listener. And especially, you know, I want to, if you'll, you'll let me, Phil, I want to say thank you to one specific listener. Is that okay? Of course. So, uh, my dad listens to this podcast every week. And we talk about it quite often. And we always talk about kind of how our dads, many of us, how our dads got us into hunting, how they were kind of shepherd us into this lifestyle, this pursuits. But I have to just thank my dad, not only for um, being, you know, my hero and the person I look up to, but for pushing me to do the best I can with everything in life and just being in it with me. I was explaining this to, to somebody the other day, you know, when, you're a parent and you feel like uh, your parent or your, you're in it with your kids. You're, you're in it for the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, the good times and the bad times. You're just invested in their life. And, and I feel like my dad is right there with me for all the things that have happened to me over the years, this podcast being one of them. And um, he was the reason, one of the reasons it got started and, if I had one listener and it was him, that would be the happiest I could be. So I want to say thank you, Dad. I love you. And we'll see you next week on The Hunting Collective. Say bye, Phil. Goodbye. Clean your gun and tune your bow. We're The Hunting Collective Show. Calling hunters new and old. The Hunting Collective Show. Working pick and shovel or working pen and hand. We congregate now as lovers of the land. Mindful and we're focused, we're just living for the search Dreaming of a fire and a salty Gilbert But we ain't coming back till it's cold and late We're taking it slow so we can shoot straight Clean your gun, tune your bow, we're the hunting collective show Calling hunters new and old, ain't no cold times old Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close... You can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give them the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. 
Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.